Hi, everyone. We are coming to you a couple nights before Christmas at 8 p.m. in the evening because you've been calling us with questions about what's going on with the ransomware attack with the UKG organization. We know it's impacting lots of organizations and lots of people in the market, and it's impacting millions of employees around the globe right now. So we wanted to get out there and give you at least the details that we had and the insights that we could share on this special episode of Spilling the Tea on HR Tech. Stacey, it was perfect timing for you to be at the UKG event this week. I mean, you were right in the epicenter of the conversation. And I'm curious about what you learned at a macro level that you think would be of interest to our listeners today. It was kind of surreal. I think the first thing is that this is a ransomware attack, which is something that it, that everyone in the industry has a risk of having happening to them, whether they're cloud or not cloud. Secondly, that this is a major vendor. This is the largest vendor who manages time across the entire market. And they have over 40,000 customers who are using the various applications that they have available to the market. And then the third thing is, what do you do now? And how do you think about going forward with this? This is an industry issue, not just a single company issue. And to me, that's the big conversation that we probably need to have tonight. Yeah. So, and lessons learned for the future, right? What does this mean for uh, organizations who might be in a different private cloud? What should they, what questions should they be asking their vendors? And then what does this mean for future vendor selection efforts and what you should be expecting? Where is that line of accountability between who should be responsible for what the disaster recovery plans are? A lot of small not-for-profits that I think were in that private cloud that perhaps were not ready to have to have their own disaster recovery plan and their own strategy for how they were going to get their payroll done, not even to mention the last payroll of the year, right? Where you've got to get all your corrections in. You wanted to make sure your W-2s are right. And, you know, just it was the perfect storm of a really bad situation with really terrible timing. There'll be a lot of debriefs to be done after these clients get through what they need to get through in the next few weeks. That's a good point. And I think it goes to the heart of, of what kind of attack this was, right? Mm-hmm. So ransomware is a criminal activity. Someone actually makes the decision they're going to target that company. They figure out how to attack them at the most vulnerable time in a way in which they can't get to their backups or can't access their backups or use their backups. And they've gone in and encrypted the data. They may have taken it, but we don't know that. So they're, so at this point in time, we're not a, not a full-blown data breach. People have to understand that, that there are some things that even if, UKG wanted to pay ransom, they, based off of the laws and regulations, they may not be able to. So there is some some legality issues here. The big thing that we're hearing is that a lot of organizations are saying, well, this is everybody in the UKG environment. Well, that's not exactly true either. UKG has over 40,000 customers in the market as a whole, right? When you take into account their workforce ready product, their ultimate UKG Pro, and all of the applications that fell underneath that application, and their UKG Dimensions application, none of those applications were impacted by this ransomware attack. They are all on public cloud. They are all secure and in separate environments. Nobody in those environments should be impacted by what happened here unless they were connected to the UKG Workforce Central product. The UKG Workforce Management product, which is time and attendance, sits on a private cloud if it is cloud-based. All the people who might have it on-premise, which is an even larger group of people, they're not impacted by it either. So it's really just about 2,000 clients who are being impacted. So let's let's dive in on the private cloud for a moment, right? That's like the OG of SaaS, right? And so it's perhaps not as up-to-date as today's real true SaaS environment, right? So should expectations be different if you're in a private cloud 
where you perhaps don't have all the bells and whistles that today's more sophisticated SaaS environments have? Yeah, I think they definitely should be that ultimately we have to be very aware that a private cloud has a lot more opportunity for people to um, not only access it, but it also has challenges with the amount of areas that people can sort of see things when they're happening. It's not by any means always protected if you're in a public cloud. There, There's still risks there as well, but it's just a little bit harder to secure private clouds because they just don't have as many tools for monitoring these kind of things. So if I'm an organization, I'm in a private cloud today, UKG or whomever, what questions should I be asking my vendor today to make sure that I'm not the company tomorrow that's impacted by something like this? That's the question everybody should be asking themselves. Am I at risk as well in whatever environment I'm in? And then ultimately, what do I do going forward if I am being impacted by this? And and the questions I think for their existing organizations who are looking at whether or not I'm in a private cloud is understanding the people processes that your organization has around securing the access to their system, because that was really what happens in a ransomware attack. It's not always a technical access issue or an update to a software or any of those kind of issues that we see in sort of the general cybersecurity risk. This is an area where someone went what we call phishing, right? Like someone picked up the phone or someone targeted someone and worked on a way to get passwords and access to separate different servers to find this information out. So it's a a people process, the process of how you let people who are leaving the organization go through the process and change their passwords. It's the process of who has access to certain things within your organization. It's the process of ensuring that you have made sure that the market as a whole within your overall approach to technology, that you are following all of the standards that organizations recommend. If you think about how these organizations must be feeling right now, right? Do you know? Do they feel like they got left in the lurch? Because as we know, it's not what always what happens; it's how the vendor, how your partner reacts to what happened. And I think the message that many of these companies received, which is, "Hey, for the next few weeks, revert back to your own business continuity plans." And many of these not-for-profit small companies were saying, but wait, you were my business continuity plan. So, like, you know, what do I do now? And so I think that's also got to be a part of the conversation of what should they be expecting from a partner? What questions should they be asking in the future if they ever go to select a new partner to make sure that uh, there is a disaster recovery plan that doesn't involve them doing what we're seeing clients do now? Like just we'll pay the same pay period that we did last time. We'll pay it again this time. We'll have people manually track their time. We'll true it up later. You know, all that kind of stuff, which is really kind of in survival mode versus business continuity and disaster planning. Yeah. And, and I think this is, you know, we kind of had like a sort of a mini disagreement on this when we were talking about it earlier, right? Which is that, you know, I think there is a, is a big part of the market that was coming out during this process and saying, look, this is on the shoulders of the vendor, my recovery plan or my disaster recovery plan includes the fact that my vendor is going to have their own plan, right? I'm not completely sure I agree with that perspective because I think we're living in a world where there are natural disasters and targeted attacks and there are things that are just outside of certain levels of control. And as a business owner, as a business leader, I, the only person, the only thing that I can really depend on is my company and myself on some level, right? Yes, you should have all the kind of agreements in your service level agreement to say that you expect to have your vendor keep their items up and running, that you expect to have access to that content on a regular basis. But I think you also have to 
always plan for the worst case scenario. What happens if I don't? What happens if there is just not the ability to have access to it? You know, from what I've seen in the organizations that I've spoken with, there are a lot of different ways that you can address it. And you mentioned a few of them. One is that I have in place a program or an approach where I will continue to make payments based off of whatever I I had paid in the past. That's a little harder for retail environments where you have such variable schedules. I've also seen some of the organizations who have had on-premise applications that they have kept running to keep historical data, and they've kept those those updated, and they've been able to spin those up rapidly to at least be able to connect payroll and some and some of the information required from a personal perspective to get payroll run. And then I've also seen some organizations just say, look, we're going to track everything manually for the next two to three weeks, including schedules that you're going to be accessing and send those out. And it puts a lot of work on admin's shoulders and a lot of work on manager's shoulders, but that's the best way to make sure that the organization can use the function. As long as people know that's what they're supposed to do when something like that happens and you have a way, a process in place, I think it's feasible. But I, th- I don't think anybody can assume that they will always have access to their data, no matter where you're at. That needs to be more transparent in the contracting process, because as you know, many of these vendors, not just UKG, but many of these vendors put these business case ROI tools in front of you and say, hey, come over to our environment. Here's how much money you're going to save. You know, here's how we're going to take it for you, right? We're going to be your partner in this. You go focus on your core business. And so they don't talk about, but, but, oh, by the way, have your own continuity plan in case we can't, can't deliver because that costs them money. And that needs to be included in the business case. That would need to be included in the ROI of, can I really afford the solution? And I, I would think that some of these vendors would be better positioned to put that plan together in aggregate and then charge more for it. Because me putting my business continuity plan in place, you putting yours in place, another company putting theirs in place, we're all spending a lot of money to do that on the on the one in a million chance that this is going to happen, right? As opposed to, let me buy into somebody else's plan and I'll just pay a little bit more, but I'll put that in my ROI. Yeah, that's not a bad, I mean, I think, I think you've just come up with some additional way that vendors can look at their services numbers, Kim. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. And again, I go back to any time, all of us who have done customer success, account management, we know it's not what happened, it's how we address what happened. It's how we helped our clients through this moment to get them what they needed to, to ultimately get back to work. And some of the organizations that I know that have, have talked to me about this, they were paralyzed when this happened and couldn't do their normal business because they had to come up with this uh, strategy. So it, it was a big, a big disruption to them. And I think it, it certainly, again, could have happened to any vendor out there, uh, but now it leads us to what other due diligence should be done as part of a vendor process so you know what to expect if this happens to you and your company and your vendor. The other thing that that we have to make sure that the market is sort of addressing here is that communication conversation you just mentioned, right? UKG has over 13,000 employees. And when something like this impacts the entire organization, even if not all of their customers are impacted, right? If only just a subset of their customers are impacted, still have to make sure that all 13,000 of those employees is sort of marching with the same communication message. And I think that was probably one of the the harder parts for them, for anybody, especially since it's a recent sort of merger acquisition type of an environment. They're still putting together some of their internal processes and tools. I think they've done actually an amazing job doing that very well, very quickly for an organization as large as they are. But anybody would be struggling with this kind of communication issue that they would have to deal with. 
So we did hear early on that there was sort of mixed messages coming out of UKG, depending on who you called and what you were trying to deal with, which I think gets back to your conversation of, you know, we had clients who were sort of paralyzed and didn't know what to do. And so I think the other piece of this is not just the technical conversation and the process and the backup standardization, but it is how do you get a single message and a clarity across that many employees quickly in any environment or any challenge or any risk that you have going on in the organization? I mean, Kim, you've well worked with a lot of organizations who have had to sort of massively roll out quick messages. Do you think that's even possible in a few hours to do that kind of a thing? It is if you have a protocol, which I'm assuming they could, about who is actually on point to communicate to your clients when something happens. What is the account management structure? And almost like a calling tree approach, like parents have when something happens at the school, right? And you have this cascade and everybody knows how it goes. Not to reduce it down to something that simple, but you know, those are some of the most effective ways. Like we have a calling tree and here's where the message came from. And here's our point of contact to, to reach out to our clients. But we also know that while I might have an account manager, I also have other points of contact within the organization. organization. And if I couldn't reach my account manager, I'm going to call that other person (laughs) I knew. And maybe they weren't an account manager. So then they're like, oh, well, this is what I think I know because I just want to be helpful in an effort for everybody to want to be helpful. So it it is possible. And, you know, we have seen, you know, examples where there there is a, a cascade. And I will say UKG got it together by Monday, right? Yeah. So they were all, you know, Saturday, Sunday, a little choppy. Monday, we got our messaging. And, and honestly, by Monday, they probably had a much better sense of, oh, this is what we're really dealing with. And here's, we've got to lay the groundwork that this is weeks. This is not days. This is weeks. And, you know, what is the best answer for our clients? The other thing that we need to make sure that the audience is, is sort of being very aware of in this process that they're going through that they do have to figure out how they're managing this, not just for a week or so, we're anticipating that this will be multiple weeks. That's the message we're continuing to get from the UKG organization. And so really your own communication internally is going to be important because your employees are also concerned. You know, I, there was a whole Facebook group that I was sort of monitoring where people were like, oh, there goes my you know Christmas bonus or my Christmas paycheck, right? That's huge for those organizations. So this is sort of a, a duplicate communication conversation that we're talking about, right? For sure. There definitely will be wages that fall into 2022 as a result of this, right? So it is what it, what it is at that point. So a lot of lessons learned here, a lot of opportunity to really reflect on, you know, if I'm out there about to do a vendor search and what are the things I should be asking, what questions I should be asking, what should I be knowing about my new partner, right? Because it's, as we all know, nobody thinks payroll is sexy until payroll's not working. And then it's the hot and sexy topic, right? It's like, it's the thing you don't think about until it's actually exposed. Yeah. So my takeaways, and I'll, I'll give mine, and maybe then you can give yours, Kim, is for the things I think that that we're sort of already learning from this, if you're in the middle of a, of a negotiation, or even if you're in the middle of a, a client dealing with this right now, is one, in your negotiations, I think you do have to do a lot of cybersecurity conversations and technical risk conversations. But I think you also have to understand the people processes they have in place for access and information. And I know that doesn't sound nearly as sexy as, oh, you know, what kind of cybersecurity process do you have in place, which is usually a technical conversation with your organization. The people processes is what happens when someone leaves your organization? What happens when someone calls in and, and gets a password? You know, those are some of the things that are really the reasons why we see ransomware actually impact such large parts of organizations because 
they get inside and they figure out your processes and they figure out the vulnerability from a people perspective. I think the other thing that our organization should really be thinking about when they're looking at their SLAs and their agreements is how do I build in at least some sort of joint agreement on the cost of this? If I have to go back to some sort of manual process or pick up another application while you're down, what does that you know impact cost me? What will the organization pay in that case, right? So you were talking about service level agreements. There's always that sort of if you're down for more than 72 hours, or if you're down for more than a couple of hours. But there's also that piece of there's additional costs that maybe we're not thinking about right now. So those are probably the two big ones I'm thinking about from a negotiation perspective. What about you? Did you see anything else you would add to that? The process questions you're asking are really good. I would expand that list of process questions to ask them, what is their recommended process if we ever could not access our technology in your cloud environment? You know, what do you recommend for an organization like ours? What should we have on our own end as a backup? How would we keep going if we could not access this? So let's do a little contingency planning. I have a project management background. And, you know, I used to say that clients paid me to be pessimistic and be worried. So I'm always thinking about what's the worst case and then how do I plan for that and the hope and mitigate that risk. If I think back to some of the early vendor selections I did back in the day at PwC or Mercer, where you know this was in the early infancy of trying to convince clients to put their cloud, their data in the cloud, their HR data in the cloud, right? And we were so paranoid, right? And we asked every little question about every little scenario that likely would never ever happen. And now we've gotten comfortable, and I don't think we ask as many good questions that prepare us for a true disaster. You mentioned in the early days of cloud, right? Like the, the the approach and the risk conversations, we had a lot of those. It is important to know, and we talked a little about this earlier, that this application, the Workforce Central application, is not only sort of slightly older technology, it's the older platform that they're trying to move people off of, but it's also the cloud solution they're using, which is a private cloud, is sort of like first-generation cloud technology too, right? And so you also have to be constantly assessing are we taking bigger risks by staying where we're at, even though it would cost us money to move to a more modern environment from this kind of a picture, right? I think we oftentimes are looking at these kind of risks based off of cloud or not cloud, but there's now multiple levels of hybrid cloud environments that people have to be aware of. It's the risk of doing nothing, right? The risk of staying where you are and put that risk factor in when you're thinking about the incremental cost to actually upgrade to the latest cloud technology. Definitely add an inflection point of questions on this, right, Stacey? I mean, this has got a lot of attention and, you know, I think it'll change the way we talk about our vendor partnerships going forward as, as we're looking at those contracts and we're looking at, at the what if scenarios. Exactly. And I think it's also going to impact, I think, the vendor community as well. They're going to be taking some long, hard looks at their people processes. They're going to be taking some long, hard looks at their own risk mitigation plans as I think they all should be. I think this is an environment where you're not seeing a lot of, of other vendors sort of jump on this bandwagon because, you know, they're but for the grace go I, because every vendor who has a private cloud or every vendor who has people processes that might have a gap in it are at risk for something just as big as this. This is an environment where we as an industry have to say, this data is important to people. What do we do as an industry to make sure that it is secure and accessible at all times? It was great that you were right there in the middle of it all and able to ask the experts and help us break it down today. Well, hopefully we've given our audience a little bit more insight and given them a little bit of tools that they can use currently while they're going through it, as well as some things they can think about as they're heading into the new year. And as we get into this next couple of uh, days, everyone I know will be 
thinking about holidays and taking time off. But keep in mind, everyone who's doing a little bit of overtime this week because of all of this, right? Yeah, our, our payroll people may not be having the um, happy holidays that the rest of us were hoping to have. If you're an HR professional and your payroll people are out there working hard, make sure you, you bring them some some goodies and that they're well taken care of through this process. Yeah, check, check in on your payroll peeps. They may not be doing well right now. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Spilling the Tea on HR Tech. We'll be back before you know it with another fresh brew. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe or follow and share the show with a friend because when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, it's time to huddle up with a crew you can count on. We will see you in the HR huddle.